Hey everyone, this is Bruce Sheffer of Gaming on the Frontier. Thanks for being with us uh, from the transition from the old sports show format to the new one, but uh, we are still having a lot of episodes that were recorded before we made the change, so we're going to still have to drop those, and they'll have the old format. So please bear with us until we get to the new material. Uh, in the meantime, uh, some one of our hosts, John Ryer, who was a host, is now has his own game studio and is busy producing new games. And we wish him the best, but he's no longer a host. So thanks to John for all the years uh, that he has given to this podcast. And we hope that you will purchase his games and continue to listen to Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. This is Pixie. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast, your podcast where you go through a portal and find out why is my crystal key missing? What do you mean you were you were holding it that I dropped it? Kiefer Sutherland as Rassilon? Jeez. Yes, folks. Tonight we are continuing my little series within a series of adding Fringeworthy 2. I've been paying attention to favored D&D settings put out by both TSR and Wizards of the Coast. Tonight we are doing, well, let's just say two words that will explain it. And will probably put a shiver of fear through most longtime role players. The possibility of it. Fringeworthy Kender. That's right. We are adding Fringeworthy to the Dragonlance setting created by Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss. And I believe it came out during second edition AD&D. And many of my friends said, oh, yeah, Dragonlance, you know, they kind of cut their teeth on it when they started doing D&D. Um, mutual former friend of mine and Josie's, that's what she cut her teeth on playing, starting to play role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons. So, yes, um, adding Fringeworthy to the Dragonlance setting. Now, obviously I'm going to go to probably the most popular and well-known era of the history of the setting of Kryn, which would be known as the War of the Lance, which the original three Dragonlance novels came from. I'm not all really that familiar with like the really far beginning or the Age of Mortals where mysticism was brought in. I'm going to stick with the War of the Lands, which is like a two-year period. And yes, you're probably going to figure, because this is such a tightly woven story, that the term storyverse is going to come up a lot in this, which John likes to use. So yeah, it could be where an, an idet might come into the middle of few Master Toad trying to capture the heroes of the lands. And if you know your Dragonlance here, I'm going to probably go into a bit of deep history with this. 
because it is such a well-loved setting. I really tried to study up on this. It was a little weak. I really had to read up this past week on getting this together. And it made me realize, wow, I haven't read this stuff in quite a while. So um, I put it on negative 17 prime, which would be Giant's Earth. I will read the blurb. I believe this is from Portals 1. Yes. Quiet, empty world until Portal 3 was explored. Populated by primitives over 20 feet in height. Huge and stocky with short legs. Temperament and xenophobic. Throw rocks and spears at strangers and even their own kind. No general advancement beyond fire. Probably diseased and lacking in all medical arts. Maybe cannibalistic or use the dead for decoration of their territory. Heads on poles common. Beware of the massive warthogs. Hill giants. Just You could put them as hill giants, and I know that there are giants in the Dragonland setting. So, yeah, I decided to put... As, again, this is a thought experiment, folks. You could put... If you want to put a setting, an intellectual property, on the fringe paths, it's up to you. For me, it just suited how I've laid out, you know, my infamous big blue binder of all the four portals books printed out in order. And I have them all set up. Otherwise known as the big blue binder of doom. Yep. There you go. Thank you, Josie. Um, yeah, I had a couple other ideas, but I just wasn't feeling it. So I put it here on negative 17 prime. Now, for those of you who know about Dragonlance, you know, of course, Ancelon is the continent in which the War of the Lands took place and many of the other major events in Kryn's history. However, there are actually other continents now. And we're going to be using two different sources tonight for our information. Of course, there is the Chronicles of Astinus, which is dragonlance.wikia.com. But I've also found a much older resource, which really worked, and I had forgotten all about it. And it's dlnexus.com, the Dragonlance Nexus, which this is a fan-run site. It's been going, oh God, probably 15, 20 years now. And as of 2014, they moved it over to a new, uh, a new evolution of the site, is what they called it. And so... I actually got more from the DLNexus.com than I did the Wikia. The Wikia was kind of lacking. I mean, I've been looking up things. I figure, oh, this is here. What do you mean it's not here? So, yes, there are actually three continents on the planet Kryn. You have Ancelon, which, as I said, is the one that the War of the Lance and most major events in Dragonlance took place on. Taladas which is in the northern hemisphere of Kryn. And there was one more, and... Atlantum. Yep, I'm looking at the uh, map on, the map of Kryn, and it has all three continents. Okay, yeah, there wasn't a lot done about Atlantum. Taladas was in the set, I believe it's called Time of the Dragon. It was an old AD&D second edition box set. And if you know your Dragonlance, if you think Ancelon took a hit from the Cataclysm, I'm going to do something that my coworker does. Put the hand in the chest and go, oh, honey. Taladas took a massive hit. The Bloodsea of Istar is nothing compared to what Taladas went through when the Cataclysm hit. three uh, Like 340 years before the War of the Lance. I mean, you just got the Bloodsea of Istar up in the north 
east corner of Ancelon. Taladas was a massive continent, and it was just turned into a bunch of a ring of islands with this massive lava pit and just charred ground and glass for hundreds of miles. Yeah, it totally shattered Taladas. And then Atlantum, there wasn't a lot done on that. Matter of fact, I didn't know that there was a third continent until, oh, about three days before the taping of this podcast. <laughs> I go, there was a third? So yeah, I was doing the research on this and I just had no idea. And Taladass I only knew about because I got the box set from some used hobby store. So anyways, as far as where I put the portals, that, that I had to do research on that too because this is a while back when I sorted this out and when I decided to do this series within a series... I had to really do the research. I'm like, okay, where was this again? I wrote it's you know where you can't read your own notes, that type of thing. Oh no, I'm guilty as charged. I can't read your notes, and I'm usually good about reading (laughs) nearly illegible things. My protege, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, thanks a lot. And again, and again, no one else can read my things because I write too damn small. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I've managed to dope out your writing because you've got notes in this, you know, the big blue binder of doom here. All right, so yeah. yeah, so the first. I had to make them a little bigger for you. Well, that's why I got the magnifying glass. Anyways, mentor protege banter, folks. Um, so the first, first forest portal is near Claren Elian Ruins on the Misty Isle. Now, the Misty Isle is on the northeastern corner of Ancelon. East of the Goodland Peninsula. It's a forested island surrounded by high winds and dangerous reefs. It is home to the Ran Eli, a highly martial, monastic, and patriarchal society. Basically, uh, it was an in-game excuse to bring in monks into this particular version of D&D. Because remember, AD&D 2nd Edition is pretty much when they decide to cart out Dragonlance. And I don't believe monks were being used back then, but there was a rule change. You could use monks. So they said, oh, let's put this monastic order here. And there was, um, I believe, after the cataclysm, like elves and minotaurs from Taladas were coming and trying to invade the island. So they just started forming. I mean, after the attacks, all there was left were the old people, the women, and the children. The old men were the masters of these fighting styles, so they improved upon them over decades and centuries. And now when you go to the Misty Isle and try to find the Claren Elian ruins, there's a good chance you're not going to... Matter of fact, it, pretty much it's the running thing. You're not going to make it out. There have been very few survivors. That's why there's so little known about this island. So this portal is going to be in the ruins, and it can be a portal or a warp. Either way, it'd be even cooler if it was a portal, just because, you know... Even they would just say, well, it's been, you know, it was one of those cases we just built the city around it centuries ago. So if your eye deck comes out onto the Misty Isle, you're going to be noticed, you're probably going to be set, a, set upon by a bunch of martial artists. And they are very isolationist and xenophobic because they've had elves and minotaurs attacking them for centuries until they kind of just 
cemented their borders and just, you know, nobody gets in. So, yeah, this, as I said, not a lot's been found out about this. You're going to find out about it on, on DLNexus.com. That's where I had to do my re-research, as it were. Now, the second one is also a forest portal, and it's outside of the Shalos Tower in Sylvanesti. Sylvanesti is one of the elven kingdoms on Ancelon. I believe that, yeah, Qualanost and Sylvanost are the two major ones. And you have, like, about, oh, let's see, Kaganesti, Dimmernesti are the sea elves. So, yeah, there's, like, three or four or five different types of elven nations. But Sylvanesti is actually not far from the first portal, the Misty Isle. And it is a deep growth, old forest, hundreds of miles across. And Shallowst is a tower where Waylorn Wyvern's Bane is in magical stasis. Now, he was a hero that was born hundreds of years ago. And he, basically his ex-girlfriend went evil. So he went to stasis to wake up to fight her later. Because, he you knew it's like, I, yeah, I stopped her, but she's still alive. So he had himself put in stasis in this tower. So when you come out of this second portal, you're going to be in a very old forest with possibly dealing with elves. And if you explore this tower, which the portal would be nearby, you're going to find, you know, the old knight on the table holding the sword. He's in salamnic armor and probably script at the bottom. Here lies Waylorn Wyvern's Bane. He will awaken for the final battle. You know. So, yes. So, the kiss won't wake him then? No. Well, I don't know. You know <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot on this guy. As I Depends said. on how much tongue's involved. <laughs> I need booze. Anyways. <laughs> um, yeah, so the Sylvanesti... Yeah, during the War of the Lance, that forest is fine. But after the War of the Lance, during like the Age of Mortals and all that, oh no, this forest goes through. Oh, there there's some mean dragons later in this Dragonlance saga, just toward the end of what they've made from Dragonlance. And if you're going through during the War of the Lance, the forest is fine. It just, you deal with this guy in magical stasis in a tower. Now the third one, Cave Grotto. Saxarath, small encampment of hill giants near the gully dwarf inhabited ruins. Now, if you remember the first Dragonlance book, there was the ruined cliff city of Saxarath, where Gold Moon ended up finding. First, she found the staff of Mishakal. Then she later found the discs of Mishakal. Mishakal is the healing goddess of Kryn. And through finding those discs, she not only brought back Mishakal, she brought back the other good deities. And I believe some of the neutral deities as well. So, and and people would read the discs and, you know, the graphics on the discs, and they would all of a sudden realize the gods are here. We abandoned them. They didn't abandon us. So Saxarath, it it's swampy. It's, you know, you have just ruined buildings on this cliff like they fell down part of the way and they're stuck on the cliff and the gully dwarves how to describe the gully dwarves stupid oh yeah dumb dumb as dirt just oh yeah um now now trav trap dirt smarter yeah i ha- i have to give them that yeah 
Scully dwarves don't have a concept of a number higher than two. They're also incredibly unkempt. Um, they're thinking that possibly gully dwarves might be dwarves having interbred with some other race. I forget which one, but yeah, gully dwarves are not the pinnacle of dwarfdom. And so they pretty much have been relegated to Saxarth and they eke out an existence there. I put the I put the hill giants there because of the swampy, rarely explored area. It seemed like a good fit for them. Okay, so the gully dwarves... My mom would say, the kindly backwards. How euphemistic. <laughs> just, oh yeah. Oh no, the, the, the gully dwarves are just, I'm reading these, when I read these books, oh God. 30 years ago, shortly after high school, I think, no, even during high school I read this, which I'm kind of dating myself here. Um, yeah, I'm just I, I hear swamp and I think, ew, hot, smelly, sticky, covered in bucks. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, the gully dwarves, as I said, they were just totally unkempt, and they didn't mind it. They didn't mind. That's that's just how they were. That's how the gully dwarves were. Of course, they weren't. If they were to leave and go out and about, you knew they were coming from quite a distance away. That's how bad they smelled. They were probably also extremely malnourished, and they're going to be like the hill giants that are described in the blurb. And trust me. You'd still want to rather meet the hill or the gully dwarves than the hill giants, because the gully dwarves won't try to eat you. These hill giants that were described in the blurb, but yeah, Saxarth was at one time a great city. Obviously, the cataclysm changed a lot of stuff, and it was basically a massive meteor shower. Is all that the cataclysm was. But of course, with how superstitious the people of Kryn were, they thought, because the kingdom of Istar, which on Ancelon was the greatest kingdom, a lot of kingdoms after a while start regressing and get all, what's the word I'm looking for here? Decadent? Thank you. Yes, decadent. And so pretty much with how the, the god king of Istar, basically he was trying to say he was better a pharaoh, basically. Yeah, there's decadent, and then there's um, the other one, which is basically degenerative. Yeah, well, the I don't think the, the society was so much regressing. It's just the god king was getting, as my dear friend Mike Liverno would say, he was getting too smart for his shorts. Just where he thought that he was on the level of the gods, such as Mishakal and Paladine and Naraka and Takesis. And so the humans just thought, yeah, we're... Just, they're, the gods just put a meteor right there. It was just a meteor storm. Mm-hmm. But but Saxarth being relatively close, yeah, it half of it slid in down a cliff into the like muck and mire. So you're gonna be dealing if you go to Saxarth with a lot of like you slip down some slime and you go down this you know, hewn stone shoot hundreds of feet into a totally different room. So, number four, forest outside of Garrett Gunthar, a sleepy hamlet on the north side of the Gunthar Island. It has a Knight's Academy, a garrison, and the Lancers Rest, an inn. It's a small port with a shallow, shallow harbor. Now, Gunthar, the, this night school, in Kryn there is this order, the Knights of Salamnia. 
if you are a knight of Salamnia, you're considered to be like a national hero. Now, if you remember the original trilogy, Stern Brightblade was the son of a knight, so he wore his father's armor and he presented himself as a knight. Now, Gunthar... I'm sorry, Trav. I, I, I'm, I'm laughing over here. You can't even go. I'm just muted, but I'm laughing because I hear Gunthar. I keep thinking of Gunther from um, Venture Time. Ah. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Now, Gunther is an island to the west of northern and southern Urgoth, and that is at the western side of Ancelon. And Garrett is this little village on the west side of the island. And as I said, it's a small port town, but it's a shallow harbor, so like really big ships can't come in. You're going to be seeing, let's see, a hamlet, oh, maybe a couple hundred people. And this main purpose of this entire village is to train Salamnic knights. Because you have the capital, which is Castle Uthwiston. And if you know that UTH prefix, that usually means you are of Salamnic ancestry. So yeah, they're basically training. It's a training town. It'd be like how you have an army base and the town is nearby. Same concept. So those of an anthropological nature on an IDET would see it's like, yeah, this entire town is here for training of military. Be like, there's the garrison, there's the military academy. So number five, this is where we go off the beaten path, as it were. Central uh, jungle is portal five. Central Sildar on Taladas. It's a large island home to the Payan Mako, local fishermen, also home to a small force of the Knights of Naraka and a cult that call themselves the Sharkmen. Now, remember, Taladas is the continent that took the major hit when that media storm hit, you know, 340 years ago. Because the calendar in Dragonlance is, the dating system is uh, PC and AC, pre-cataclysm, after-cataclysm. And I believe it is... 349 AC to 350 or 352 to 354 AC is when the War of the Lances, I believe. So, yeah, Taladas, I, I, I'd seen the map of Ancelon for years, and then I did get this tale, The Time of the Dragon. It's a black box set, and I open it up, I pull this map out, and I'm looking, holy crap, you know, I thought Ancelon had it back. So, yeah, a lot of the islands are like, broken concentric circles around the massive uh, crash site of the meteorite that hit Taladas. So yeah, you're on basically what would be a jungle tropical island. And you're going to be dealing with the Payan Mako, which are the local fishing tribes that have settlements all over this, this archipelago. The Knights of Naraka, I believe Naraka is one of the gods and then the Sharkmen, they really didn't elaborate on, just they said a small cult called the Sharkmen, which is funny because Pi and Mako, M-A-K-O, that is a type of shark. So I, I saw the symmetry there. Rule six, or rule six. Portal six, which is another jungle, the Island of Dragons north of Ancelon. 
the Dragon Isles, the Isle of Baran, human villages on a shoreline, brass dragons guarding the villages and the peaks. Now, the thing about the Isle of Dragons is it's where the good dragons were hiding before the War of the Lance. And there were protection spells on it that moved the islands all over the oceans to around the north of Ancelon. It was a protection to keep those dragons safe. Well, the evil dragons end up finding it by being disguised and sneaking on the island and then stealing good dragon eggs. Hence, I believe that's how you got your draconians. And if you know anything about the Dragonland saga, you know the draconians are like three or four different types. They pretty much were Takesis's foot soldiers. The Takesis is an evil goddess and pretty much the god of dragons. She would be akin to Tiamat. If you know your D&D or your, and help me out with this guy's Tiamat, Babylonian or, because Tiamat is in real world mythology. I'm trying to remember which pantheon. Babylonian. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Five-headed dragon piece of... Yeah. Oh, she is not. I hate fighting her in any form. Yes, well, Tachesis was pretty much the Dragonlance version of Tiamat. And so she sent... That's a similar name, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, She sent evil dragons disguised in polymorph (laughs) who seal good dragon eggs, and that's how the Draconians were made. (laughs) And so the Isle of Dragons still held... And it's like the brass dragons that are there. They kind of, they're up there in the peaks because you have the mountains and then the jungles at the foot of the mountains. Mm -hmm. And it's these brass dragons are kind of like, oh, I like this human village. I'll protect them. So if you come out onto this village there and the humans don't like you for one reason or another, you're pretty sure that they're going to be probably ringing a very large bell or banging a gong, embracing their inner T-Rex as it is to summon their protector. And, yeah, that, that's usually, I, I think most of us who've role-played in Fringeworthy when they realize it's like, we went through a portal or we got to deal with another dragon. So, yeah. But the Isle, that's the thing. That would be something that would come into play, guys, is that, okay, here is a portal set on an island, and this island bounces around an ocean. Oh, God. Yeah, I, I, I read that, and I'm like, hmm. Now, we all know that the portals were made on all of the various alternate and parallel Earths. And I think Bruce and I agreed anywhere from 100,000 to 250,000 years ago. So uh-huh. that I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that portal was stationary before any type of dislocation yeah. spell would bounce the island around. It was stationary. Yeah, was the operative word, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I kind of wondered about that. I'm like, okay, well, since it was probably one of the gods that made that spell which moved the Isle of Dragons around, and that portal was already hardwired in, I guess would be the best term, it would just be moving that portal around as well. It's like, let's say you have your your scientific gadgetry and all of you and realize, wait a minute, this island is 300 miles to the east from where it was six hours ago. Because it didn't say how often the island moved around, but there were just a lot of dislocation. It would move this small archipelago around all over the ocean to protect the good dragons. So yeah, that would be kind of weird where you're sitting there and let's say you managed to 
Because a lot of IDETs have, they launch satellites so they can get satellite recon of the area. And all of a sudden, they're, yeah, they're going to realize, wait a minute, this island was, we're now north of where this island was yesterday. So, yeah, I read that and I just found that very interesting. It got me to thinking about that. About if you place a portal and all of a sudden somehow the landmass it's on is ambulatory for some reason. Portal 7, Forest, Qualanesti, Elven populated forest island. Elves have justifiable distrust of humans. Okay, this is the Elven forest near, it is there in Abyssinia where much of the War of the Lands takes place. It is to the west of the small town of Solus, where, and I'm blanking, I know there's... There's autumn, winter, and spring, and it's like dragons of name of the season, and then a word, and I'm blanking on the three titles. Anyways, the first one, Dragons of Autumn, Solus is this small town, and you have the inn of the last home. Qualanesti is to the west of that treetop village. And post-cataclysm, you had a lot of human raiders coming in, and there was a lot of, well, let's say Tannis half-elven is the result of some of those forced meetings between humans and elves, and I will leave it at that. So the elves got yeah. very, yeah, the elves got very protective of their borders because they didn't want humans coming in, taking their women's. So until the War of the Lance and the Heroes of Lance kind of reopened the borders with the Qualanesti, yeah, you're going to be dealing with another uh, elven nation of paranoid xenophobes, especially if they see that most of the team is human, albeit dressed strange and carrying strange weapons. You're going to be dealing, and and usually it's a it's a fantasy trope convention that if you go into a forest that is elven owned, elven guarded, you'll never see it coming oh, because no. they are that good at hiding. <laughs> yeah, giggles the woman who played Karotu in my campaigns. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. super strong elf. So yeah, it's like no Josie rocked that. As far as the last thing you're going to see is the arrow sticking out the front of your chest. Yeah, um, but yeah, the Qualanesti because of these <clears throat> incursions by humans for decades. They just got very xenophobic and they were just like, okay, we're shutting down everything. It could be a portal or warp that you put there. Either way, the speaker of the sun, I believe, is the ruler of Qualanesti and Sylvanesti is the speaker of the stars. They might know about the portals just through divination or strange things coming through the portals. They would know, yeah, there's something there, just a warp that... None of us can access, but every so often, you know, like five centuries ago during my great-grandfather's time, somebody came through, you know. So you can have these as portals and warps, whatever suits your campaign. I usually just do warps. It's very rare that I say, yeah, a portal should go here. And like John said in a previous episode, yeah, they just built around it. They didn't know what it was. They, just, they thought it was, you know, modern art for the time, and they just put a whole city around it. Finally, the eighth portal, Plains. Outside Keishu, Kweishu, I've always had a different pronunciation. Kweishu in Abanasinia. 
tribal land, society akin to Native Americans, hunter-gatherers, and some herding. Now, Dragonlance fans would know the Kweishu are the tribe in which Riverwind and Goldmoon are from. Goldmoon being the chieftain's daughter, Riverwind being just one of the hunters, and yeah, they were in love with each other, but the chieftain, Goldmoon's father, really wasn't keen on Riverwind because he was kind of like not high class enough, and so their love was kind of a forbidden fruit type thing. But yeah, this por- this portal would just be out there on the plains as a warp, probably not even a trail leading to it, and just you're out there and you're out on like rolling grasslands. The best way to just have that, and you might see a hunting party going after a herd or something off in the distance or whatever. Um, the Kweishu, I believe, were the best as far as dealing with quote-unquote civilized humans, because there were three or four tribes in the Abanasinian Plains. Let's see, there was the Kweishu, the Kwekiri, the and two other, well, one other, another, a fourth one there was, and they pretty much got wiped out. So, yes. They started the same way as the other ones. They they all sounded similar just now. <laughs> well, yeah, they all have that prefix of Q-U-E, then a dash, and then... But I remember the Kwekiri, the Kweishu. I believe the Kweteth was the one that got wiped out, and then there was um, the Kwenar, I believe. Yeah. I'd have to look up my notes here. I wrote it down. But, yeah. The... I, I tried to spread the portals out, at least give a shout out to Taladas and put one there because I was looking through when I plotted this out a few years back and I was just like, okay, there's nothing really setting. There's no real jungle in Ancelon because it's a Southern continent. And then when I got the Tal- the time of the dragon box set and I saw, Oh, there's tropical stuff. Yeah. We'll put that there. So yeah, it just, it, it's more of a temperate continent Ancelon. So if you can find, as I said, this is second edition D&D, so you're going to have to go to like a used gaming store or maybe go to like Noble Knight Games, the the online store, Knight with a K-N. I think it's noblenight.com. And if you can get Time of the Dragon, you'll be able to get the information on Taladas and find out about the, the society of the Minotaurs that... They're big into sailing, and it's a very Roman-esque society. Basically, you have minotaurs wearing togas, having a senate, and they're expert sailors. And So yeah, the War of the Lance, which is the time era that I'm putting this in, as I said, it's the most familiar to me, and most likely it's the most familiar to most Dragonlance fans. I read, I think, the War of the Lance, the original trilogy, and then the Trial of the Twins, where it was like five years later, and Caramon sort of became kind of heavy set and drunk, and he had married Tika, and he just sort of fell out of favor with himself. He just, you know, felt like he failed. And it took, you know, Tasselhoff Burfoot to get him back going again and get all sober and back into battle and everything. And it was. It was all having to do with his brother, Raceland. But anyways, I didn't read. Once I saw how the Dragonland series <laughs> proliferated, I was just like, it's too much to keep up with. 
And then I'm hearing there was the time of the mortals where it's like the next generation. And yeah, there, it's a very rich history. This world that Tracy Hickman, Hickman and Margaret Weiss had created is just a fantastically long story going, you know, centuries. And of course, other people collaborated over time. It became almost like a, um, let's see, wild cards. A shared world anthology is the term I was looking for. Now, there are some questions that I usually ask when I do these type of settings. And one of them is like the tech level. Flatly PL2, medieval level tech, the highest thing you're going to have is a crossbow. Except, and, oh, that's right, John, you said you weren't all that familiar with Dragonlance. Yeah, but I bet there's gnomes, and they bet they make stuff, don't they? Oh, yes, the gnomes of Kryn. The second uh, race that you need to keep an eye on. I should have known, have... known better. Oh, know what I'm saying? Yeah. Shout out to my buddy Debo Spice. That was one of his album names. Anyways, on that island of Gunthar, which I mentioned, where Garrett, the small fishing town is with the uh, the Knights Academy, there is, two, on, the, on the whole eastern half of the island, there's a mountain range. And one of those mountains is actually an active volcano with the biggest gnomish community on the planet. <laughs> oh no, Josie knows enough about it. As soon as I, you heard that sort of <laughs> from her, yeah. Mount Nevermind, which it's because it probably had a very long gnomish name, and when they tried to say that, a lot of humans just said, never mind. So colloquially, the mountain became known as that. You can tell this mountain from afar, and you can probably see it from Garrett, because, well, the top of it was blown off. Now, you can lay odds to whether it was something volcanic or if it was something mechanical-based. Because the Tinker knows... Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to bet, as, as you know, Sam Jackson said as Nick Fear, I'm willing to bet folding money was probably the gnomes. <laughs> now, the gnomes... Oh, no, they are PL4. They have steam tech. Is it reliable and safe steam tech? No, but it is steam tech. <laughs> the, the gnomes are known. Nothing next to an active volcano. No, nothing yes. there safe. No, no, these gnomes... Um. Oh, God, the Bureau OSHA agent, John's buddy. What's his name again? I'm blanking. Mike, no, if, if I, Mike Bonkowski. Oh, no. I, Mike Bonkowski would have a field day. Just, nope, that needs to be taken down. That's gone. Get that out of here. Is that an open stream of lava? <laughs> Is, Josie would lock down the whole platform. <laughs> where'd, you get that, where'd you get that rainbow key? Shut up. This is for emergencies. Just lock down all eight portals. Next node. Let's go. Yeah. Um, but no, the Tinker Gnomes... I don't want to deal with... I don't want to deal with being near one of those. Much no. less people who willingly live at its feet. Yes. Because, no. yes, Mount Nevermind is an active volcano. So apparently, 
oh, I'm willing to bet that they probably have even geothermal heat going. Oh, yeah. They they probably pump up water from the ocean, and they dump it on the hot lava, and they got steam, and they capture the steam. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no. Well, of course, the steam turbine is probably the size of a football stadium because the gnomes, hey, if we can make it, we can make it bigger, better, and with more bells, whistles, buttons, and lights. Yeah. Well, it probably wouldn't be the biggest football scene, but it still would be huge. You know, and I'm looking at some of the name of the gnomes, like, let's see if I can do this one. Elephon Langrut Tad Inak Takrush Van Vin Askaladil Masriki. I don't know if that was Klingon or Swedish. That's his whole name, and there's no spaces. There's no spaces in that name. <laughs> Gnomes have three names from what I remember reading. One was that full three-hour-long name. Then there was one which is down to about 30 seconds. And then there's the one that most other races just say, Atlant, fine, your name is Atlant. And, of course, the Gnomes are kind of insulted by that third name. But they realize that they just chalk it up to, well, you other races just can't think like we do. I see the gnomes as being mechanical savant autistics. You know, Trav, I'm sorry, I should interrupt, but I'm looking at Glepstick Glogger, a gnome from Mount Nevermind. He's called Glep's everyone else for a very obvious reason. Glep's left Mount Nevermind on a flying device in the spring of 392. No, they're not TPL4. They're early PL5. Okay. Well, well, you got to remember with how the PLs were. And, and I just realized, uh, and I just realized the whole it being an active volcano thing is another reason to call it Mount Nevermind. I said, never mind. We're not going there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a flying device. I mean, it's obviously going to be a glider or, if, well, no, considering gnomes, it was a heavier than air device, which puts an early PL5. Well, you got to remember what the PLs for the modern. And you got to remember with how the PLs were, if you said you were at a PL, which I put these guys at PL4, you can make prototype stuff of the next level. It's just that it's five wealth points higher because it's cutting edge technology. So, yeah, they may have had early rocketry, but it was expensive as all get out. And you know that the Gnomish Council was like. Sorry, Trav, rocketry is actually PL4. We talking like the hail rocket and things like that. Remember, you know, the rockets red glare; those were war rockets. Yeah, that's right. Wars. Yeah, so it'd have to be a jet <laughs> aircraft. Basically, would be. No, if if it has props, it'll be early PL five. That'd be just good enough. Jet aircraft didn't come until the very very end of World War Two, from my recollection. So that was, yeah, PL five in the D twenty parlance. PL five is when the first atomic bomb was dropped. Once we discovered fission power. That is when PL5 began. So if you're having jet aircraft, yeah. Or late PL4 then, because that, that then puts it in definitely in the uh, in the amazing young gnome with his flying machine, because I'm reading this. You know, uh, he left on a flying device in 392 AC and was listed as missing for three months. 
He was found later broken with his broken body was found uh, near the flying machine, uh, but he was able to. But he survived. So any, wa- any any crash you can be carried away from is a good one, I guess. <laughs> uh, but yeah. <laughs> oh, <what took> yeah. <laughs> no, probably more like oh, I think I know what went wrong. <laughs> yeah, not enough bells and lights because the gnome gnomish inventions are if one light works let's put another five and a couple of bells on and just Rube Goldberg uh, yeah but I mean just that's how the gnomes were and nine times out of ten they wanted it to do something and it did something else usually explode now you had later on what they called the mad gnomes their inventions worked Problem is, that was a sign of insanity to the Tinker Gnomes, so Mad Gnomes often were kicked out of my... It's like, what? You actually made something, and there was no explosion, no lights, and it did what you said? Get out. So Mad Gnomes often were ostracized from gnomish society, because apparently, as I said, I, I equate gnomes to mechanical savant autistics, and with myself and the professor both being autistic, I'm sure she'll agree. If she were to re-up on the gnomes, you would realize they have that focus, that that Aspie hyper-focus that she and I have, where a lot of times you don't see and notice the other stuff that's going on because you get so intent on what you're doing. And they have life quests, which often last generations. My great-grandfather worked on a way to make, you know, a steam-powered poultry cooker. Granted, my great-grandfather, grandfather, and father all died from their experimentation. But gosh darn, I'm going to find out how to do it, you know. So, Meanwhile, we have a perfectly good chicken cannon, though. Yeah, right. Steam-powered chicken yeah, cannon. We chickens <laughs> 500 miles. I'm reading the write-up on the, on the lexicon of the gnomish tinker. A gnomish tinker is a gnome who, who has not spent the time to acquire the knowledge, skill, or temperament to master the arts of invention and gadgetry. Doesn't stop them from trying, though. <laughs> yep, indeed. Most spend their days trying to solve their life quests or are working on a study group instead of direct application and planning. So basically, these are the guys that sit in the garages and tinker with their with their cars. Yeah. Oh, good God. Well, <laughs> Actually, no, this is more, more like the guys back in the turn of the century sitting in their garages tinking with, tinkering with their cars. Yeah. They're the ones that turn, turn around and turn into... Uh, into all the various car makers and airplane makers. Curtis started making motorcycles. He built his first motorcycle in literally in his garage, and he went later went on to make some of the best uh, flying boats ever made. Ah. Well, this is also the same guys that attached a Jado unit to a sports car. A what? A Jado unit, jet-assisted takeoff. Oh, dear God, those, yeah. Yeah. They're the same people who do that too. They're not oh, no. all. They no, don't. No. They're not all budding car manufacturers. Oh no! <laughs> I was just recently saw on Facebook the <clears throat> the flat earther who made the rocket and he went like seventeen hundred miles in it. No, no. Seven, he basically went lower altitude than the hill than the mountain behind him. The mountain was sixteen hundred feet. He went about. 1,200 feet. Okay, I, I read that he went, like, I thought 1,700 feet. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, Basically. No, he, no. he could have gone higher by climbing the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and he is of the um, the flat earther movement, which we will not get into all that here. But basically, that was his claim to fame, and he was trying to prove mm-hmm. his theory with this rocket. And he just probably made a very big divot in the Earth when he came back down. Obviously, he, he survived it. Yeah. So obviously, yeah. He, he his design was at least sturdy enough, crash resistant. Yeah. Yeah. But imagine pretty much that guy. Shorter, with a big nose, very nasal voice, speaks incredibly fast. Where you have to constantly so over here, we gotta put this over here, and we gotta put this over yeah. here. Yeah, oh, over there, and, oh, that, and now turn that knob. Yes, exactly. Thank and you. It, hopefully, it won't explode. Right. Well, no, no. Remember, <laughs> if there isn't an explosion and your invention works, that's when you're deemed a mad gnome, and you know they point, ah. they point the door. Usually, it, it, it's it's almost, and I hate to say this, it's almost like a mental illness with these tinker gnomes that they have to have their inventions do this stuff, and they just keep doing it, and they will spend three, four, five generations on LifeQuest trying to perfect this machine or find this theory or do this and often cause more trouble than they're worth. And just, it's the ones that we would see, we humans would see as successful. Oh, that you found this and this invention works. Well, yeah, my my family doesn't talk to me anymore. Why? Because my invention worked, huh? You know, and just it's that gnomish mindset. Yeah. Now, that is the race near Garrett Gunther, which is Portal Four. Now, Portals One and Two. They, well, they're near. Well, of course, this race I'm going to talk about next are pretty much everywhere. But there is another race of interest on Kryn. First of all, there is something. There are no orcs. There, there's a couple things about Kryn that are interesting. One, no orcs. You're not going to find orcs anywhere. Also... And this is something that Bruce, John, and I have expressed continually on this podcast as far as the nature of Fringeworthy. Magic? Very few worlds have magic. We sit there, though, and say, Psy? Psy usually works across the board. Except here on Kryn. Kryn, actually, there are no natural psionics on Kryn. And if you have psionics and you come to this node... And I mean, you could say the node, or you could, once you go through the portal and are actually on the planet, and we will use the mechanic of PowerPoints. If you are a psionic and you go onto the world of Kryn, you do not regenerate PowerPoints when you sleep or you rest. After a while, your psionic powers will disappear because you will not regain the points needed to continually do them. And it is something that the gods did not like, so they just said, no, there will be no natural psionics on this world and those who come from through the phlogiston on Spelljammer, or through the eternal staircase of Planescape, or through these portals, your powers will disappear because you will not have the energy to use them. So it sounds like they are, in fact, suppressing... Yes. Active, active psionics. I'm going to use the word active psionics. It, well, of course, the gods, you know, they would control technically the genetics of, whereas just, no, the, the potential for psionics on this world will never exist. 
Well, the um, the background of the of psionics in the in the game is that um, pretty much it's 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 what makes us a social animal. Everyone is psionic to some extent. You know, everyone has this low level empathy feel. Oh well, yeah, except maybe except for maybe sociopaths who don't got yeah. it. Yeah, but yeah, that was something I noticed that in the friend setting. If you come from another dimension, your powers start, it, just your psionic power points don't replenish with rest. And that could be just simply be a suppression rather than a, uh, you know, anything else. So there's a suppressing. There's no one born with psi on the planet. So I would, you know what I would do? I would, I would question that. I would say, okay, you, you're a fringe ray. You leave this world. You go, you leave this node. And then 18 hours later. Oh, no, you can learn if you are from Kryn. And you decide to go to another dimension and you pick up your character, picks up a psionic class, or you gain like the wild talent feat. You can get it once leaving. It, it is, I would say it is more suppression then because let's say a human from a human from Gunther goes through that portal near Garrett and all of a sudden through some happenstance he gains psionic ability he is a psionic being now it's just once he comes back home it goes away the powerpoints will not replenish over time once he leaves back and takes his first eight hours sleep powerpoints start rebuilding again so it is a matter of suppression not only of psionic energy but of yeah it's of psionic energy because you could be born psionic it's just in this dimension in this alternate material plane, psionics are not allowed. That's why I said active psionics. Yeah. So you can't, you know, but the natural empathic field may still be there. It's just that no one can do anything with it. You know, everyone still is empathic. They just don't have the ability to, you know, take it to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Elithids hate this world. Yeah, I don't remember. Re oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we will get into that later when we talk about the system platform. But now I have to bring up something that is totally unique to Dragonlance. This race was made by Mr. Hickman and Ms. Weiss. And they have become both one of the most endearing facets of this intellectual property and one of the most frustrating, and I am saying frustrating as a game master. Josie has even played one of these. I believe the name was Fingers. Oh, yes, Fingers Underfoot. Yes, and I am talking about the race known as Kender. So how long did so how long did Fingers keep keep them? Oh no, no, no. No, no, no. Everything was fine until um, Goth Bunny, Pixie's mom, told me that Fingers got her hands on a deck of many things. Yes! The, fa <laughs> the face palm that I gave, I'm just, I was like, oh dear God, no. You know what? The selling, you're, that's a character who goes, oh, a deck of many things. Shuffle, deal, 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 yeah. deal. <laughs> it's like the joke I played poker with a tarot deck I won my hand but three of the other players died yeah um, anyways the Kender for those uninitiated with the <clears throat> joy of knowing what they are 
Imagine a halfling, a little bit taller, with some elven features, with ADD, no sense of fear, and no sense of personal property whatsoever. Besides Josie, two other people in my campaign that have played Kender, Perky Goth, and my nephew Jericho. And Kender, if you know how to play them, and it's funny because Perky Goth does have ADHD, she's nailed it. Now, when I told her weeks ago that I was doing this particular podcast, I'm picking her up from her previous job, and she turns to smile at me and goes, are there fringeworthy Kender? Look up the Nostalgia Critic's 45-second no for my answer to her. While she's still nodding going, yes, yes. Are you kidding me? No, 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 no. Put that on a 10-hour loop. And I know see, I figured you see. I figured Josie, you would have got along with the the. You would have gotten on board with the fringeworthy Kender, which I would have just fired back. Fine, I get to make invid fringeworthy. You know, just shots no, fired. No, no, no. I, I, I could see that if you, if you want to, end up with a Kender that has a collection of things from other worlds too. Yeah, I know. How did he get a rainbow key? Just go with it. Just yeah. It was just lying around. Right. Exactly. And the thing is, that's what they do. The Kender, oh, if you call a Kender a thief, oh, that is one of the gravest insults you can do to a Kender. They are handlers. What we would see as learned thieving skills, picking locks, stealth, pickpocketing. Those are games to the Kender. That's just like, you know, we play hide and seek all the time. It's just the Kender take that and these other skills to the next level. That's just how they're trained. That's just like us learning, you know, to play baseball or, you know, play house or whatever. It's just stuff that the Kender kids are all raised with. Problem is they have no sense of personal property. If you're a Kender and you walk into the house, you'll just take the, you pick it up, take the knife and walk out that's sitting on the counter. And the other Kender aren't going to get mad. That's just how they all are. Problem is this mindset does not work in other societies. Holy... I'm reading the Kinder racial traits. Small. As small creatures, Kinder gain a plus one size bonus armor class and a plus four size bonus on high checks. Plus two racial bonus on climb, open locks, move silently. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's pretty normal. So, I mean, technically... No, but that technically means they get, in the right circumstances, they get a plus six to sneak. Well, you got to remember in... Now, now, Pathfinder has taken over for OGL. High okay. have been lumped into stealth. So they get the plus four wow. to stealth. And, oh okay. no, but Kender? See, that's the thing. Kender with the, the ADHD tendency, yeah, they're wonderful guards, or they're wonderful recon experts. Problem is, in ten minutes, they'll see something ooh shiny and explore that. And then when they come back three hours later... Hey, did you check out the, the Dragon's Lair? No, but I found this really cool thing over here. And you're like, oh, dear God. See, if you can keep a Kender focused and tell them, go there, check out everything that's there and come back here. If you can keep them focused, if they manage to keep their eye on the prize, Kender make fantastic recon. And but that is it's exactly just the shiny. Why, and that is exactly why I played one. Me? Focus? What's that? <laughs> it almost sounds like okay, fringe. You got a fringe really kender. Uh, the first thing, the first thing to do is give him. Here's a bottle of Adderall. 
Wow. <laughs> Better living through chemistry, folks. Because uh, of the racial trait, the portals won't try to fix it. Oh, no, and here's another thing. Well, that, that Kenders are like slarg in when you hear them go oops and start running. You don't have to outrun what the Kender said oops about. You just have to outrun the Kender. That is one of the things. Or any other member of your party. Say is oops. Because it usually oh, means he set off something. Oh, wait. Uh, I think you? I've actually, I think mine has actually said that before. <laughs> uh, it's that one maxim I forgot from Sluggy Free, Freelance. I forget which one it is, but any ordinance officer in a dead run outranks everybody. <laughs> I think I had to go because I rolled a one. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. I've heard some good stuff from Sluggy Freelance. Is that the one with Kiki the Ferret? No, that's that's uh that's a different okay. one. That's actually uh no, I sluggy free. I'm sorry, not sluggy free. It's Schlock Mercenary. Oh, okay, Max, yeah, Max. I was gonna say sluggy freelance was with Kiki the Ferret, and I have a friend down in Georgia, yeah. Kiki Cannon, who pretty much kind of knows them. Anyways, yeah. but Ken, yeah, Slock Slock Mer- yeah, Slock Mercenary has a whole list of uh, maxims for for mercenaries, yeah. and one of them is yeah, ordnance officers on a dead run outrank everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's our resident military guy, yeah. But yeah, Kender, as I said, if gnomes are the aspie mechanical savants, Kenders are the ADHD. And as I said, if you call a Kender a thief, that is the gravest insult you can do to them. They are handlers because they handle things. They'll walk by and just see, oh, what's this in the sack here? And then they put it in their sack and forget about it. Well, if you find out about it, of course they will do, well, you dropped it and I was going to give it back to you, but I got distracted. And of course your first thing when they say is like, Oh, no big surprise there. Kender also have an ability. If you get on their wrong side, first of all, Kender feel deeply. Mm-hmm. If you harm the friend of a Kender, put your affairs in order. There won't, be a, there won't be a hole big enough to hide in. That's right. Kender have an ability known as taunt. Now, with OGL, you basically roll a bluff check. And <laughs> you can, you can, a Kender can rile up an opponent so much, they will forget everyone else on the battlefield. And they will go after that Kender with the intent to kill. The <laughs> Kender push buttons that much. It's almost like a hidden psychological gift. It's like, ooh, here's a shiny red button. Yeah, your mother was this. And they will, ah, I'll kill you. You know, so Kender. What's this button do? Well, yeah, they're kind of like, yeah, Dee Dee is the kind of from Dexter's Laboratory. But Kender, as I said, if you get on the wrong side of a Kender, Kender know all the dirty tricks. There's only one thing worse than a Kender handler, and that's a Kender army. Because the Kender have this weapon. It's called a hoopack. It's ba- and now in Pathfinder they they list it as a halfling sling staff, because yeah, it is a long stick of a bendy kind of wood, almost like willow, with a Y split at the top, and they'll put like the piece of cloth which you use as a sling, or they just use it as a staff. They could also whip it around. It sounds like a bull roarer, so it makes a type sound. And that is the, you know how dwarves have hammers and axes as their weapons? 
the who pack is the Kender weapon. It's kind of like an all-purpose type thing. They can use it as a melee weapon. They can use it as a ranged weapon. They can use it to warn other people. When you hear that noise, you know something's going on. And so the Kender, as I said, they've become... They, they were a uniquely... A unique race to the Dragonlance setting. It's just... You have to be somebody special to play them. Because most times, most GMs... And until Gina rocked the Kender that she played in an old campaign of mine... I was just like, no, I, I will not allow Kender characters because the players, nine times out of ten, will go out of their way to make sure that this character is annoying as hell. And just I'm like, no, I don't need this. You're going to derail the entire campaign. And if you learn to focus the character, as I said, if you can keep a Kender on target and... What's the term? And I use this with Josie. Why is she her her podcasts are tilted the way that they are for her episodes? If you play to a Kender's strengths, the Kender are fantastic. Get me this device. They'll have it back quicker than you can say Jack Robinson. Or you see that that place right over there? It's a two minute walk. Learn everything you can about it. Don't be seen and come back and tell us everything you find. They'll do it. But you just have to keep them focused because they have ADHD on 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 eleven, and so you're going to find Kender all over. They have migrated to every part of the planet, and as I talk about the system platform later on, even farther, because the Kender just they they're they are the halflings of this world. Problem is. Hickman and Weiss had to make them where, oh, it's not just a half. Oh, they just rebranded a halfling. Oh, no, no. The Kenders are their own race. And from what I found out, there are half Kender. It seems that humans and Kender are interfertile. Because I had, there is, what is it? The Kender, Kender Cyclopedia. It was a netbook. And yeah, apparently there are later on at post War of the Lance, there are half Kender. And they look like human teenagers with slightly pointed ears. And, okay, yeah, I don't know if I'd allow one in my campaign, but as I said, just the Kender, you come upon this world, and it's going to be that totally unique race. Mm-hmm. You go to other fantasy worlds, oh boy, humans, goblins, dwarves, elves, gnomes, yeah, yeah. What's this? It's not a halfling. It's not an elf. And where's my gun? This podcast is protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and make all attributions to Gaming on the Frontier. The views, information, concepts, or opinions expressed during Gaming on the Frontier are solely those of the individuals involved.